0: John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Of all the preparations I've done in this series on um, the epistles of uh, the New Testament, this has been the most challenging. um, Because there's so much material, uh, so much information, um, quite frankly, so many opinions and so many ways I could stir up trouble um, that I I hardly knew what to do with myself. But here we go. I've got an outline. That's about as good as I can tell you. I've got an outline. If I were to describe for you right now a litany of the end times, and that litany would include wars and rumors of wars, and increased wickedness, and nations to the north, and a thing called the Mark of the Beast, and the Antichrist. And if I were to describe all those things to you in eloquent language, which I'm not about to do, primarily using not just the text of the New Testament, but current events. If I were to describe those things to you, some of you at least would say, yes, that's today. Yes, I see all those signs. Yes, His coming must be near. And then I would have to tell you that the description I gave you is the exact description that God gave John. And John gave seven churches. And their response in the first century would have been exactly the same as yours. Yes, I see that. I see all those signs right here in current history. It's upon us. You can see my point, right? We're not privileged in the 21st century to understand this book any more than the people in the first century were. None of the events of human history in our day give us a more complete picture than any of the events of human history in their day. Well, that's a great way to start, isn't it? The book of Revelation is is a wonderful book. It's apocalyptic it's prophetic, and it's an epistle written to a group of churches, and we get to listen in. It's full of beasts and dragons and alarming angels, good and bad. It's full of what appear to be sensational predictions. And routinely, commentators, preachers of all sorts for the last 2,000 years have interpreted it in a variety of ways in shall we say even wild ways when I think of the history of the interpretation of the book of Revelation my mind always comes back to a comment that G.K. Chesterton made I love this comment an English author he said though st. John the evangelist the writer saw many strange monsters in his vision. He saw no creatures so wild as one of his own commentators. (laughs) You get it? One of his own commentators, which includes us. There's a lot of ways to approach the book of Revelation. um, And I want to upfront get uh, some of those out of the way In, in very succinct description I, I want to acknowledge that one of the ways of understanding uh, this book is what is frequently called the historicist approach basically and some of these blend together I'll acknowledge that up front Uh, Basically, the historicist approach goes something like this. Revelation is, is kind of a survey of church history. And if you study it well, you can see the unfolding eras or times in the book of Revelation. And you can match it up to certain epics in history. And the culmination, of course, is at the end. And the end of it all is the great apocalypse and the return of Christ. But for the most part, Revelation, if you study it well, you can understand eras in human history. You can identify them. Another approach to the book of Revelation is what is often called the preterist approach. Uh, The preterist approach to understanding this book and its predictions is that the events in the book were fulfilled in the past, primarily if not exclusively. They were conditions, let's say, before the fall of Jerusalem at 70 A.D. And anything that relates to the future might have been the future concerning 70 A.D. But all of it, for the most part, took place in the first century. And we're looking at a book that describes what already transpired. That's sort of a preterist approach, for better or for worse. There's also what you might call a futurist approach, And there are variations among all of these, especially among the futurist approach. The revelation is a description of future events. And we wait for its unfolding, its fulfillment in eras. A little bit like the historicist approach, but still a bit different. There's a fourth approach, and to these we could probably add others, right? There's a fourth approach that's sometimes called the idealist approach, often called the spiritualist approach. Uh, Use the title you uh, choose. But that approach says that basically Revelation is a description of divine principles that illustrate themes that emerge in history. The history of the church and the world. They're not particular dates and times and sequences, they're themes. A more radical approach of an idealist would be to say that none of this really relates to history at all. It relates to themes that you can see in history. That would be a more radical idealist approach. So if you don't like any of those approaches or see value in some of them but not all of them or all of them put together you might come up with some kind of eclectic approach right i guess the last time i said anything about the book of revelation we had a series on the seven churches and one of the things that i heard constantly when i was finished is why didn't you tell us where you're coming from so okay i will that will prejudice you to everything I have to say from here on out. And, uh, will put me in a different category than the one you probably want. Because I'm for the most part an idealist. That doesn't mean that I don't think anything about this book is historical. I do. And I think there's going to come a time where Christ will return. And I think there's things in this book that are predictive of what will happen in the end. But for the most part, all the signs of the times and the dates and the eras, in my opinion, are insignificant to the main message. The main message is not about that. The main message is what I hope to describe this morning. Let me put it to you another way this will make it uh excruciatingly painful and irritatingly paradoxical. I think when you read the book of Revelation, you see things that have happened, things that are happening, and things that will happen. They say, that's not so bad. Yeah, but take it, a step further, all of those things at some level are happening and have happened and will happen simultaneously. I would advise you to give up on trying to understand the book of Revelation in terms of precise sequences or times or places at all. And to try to get to the main message of the book without those things. As it relates to the book, uh, we probably need to remind ourselves of the background, don't we? We always do that. The book was written by John, uh, who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He might have been exiled there by the emperor himself. Or it's possible, I think probably more likely, exiled by a governor from that region. But no matter, he's exiled because he's a threat. He's stirring things up among the Christians, which are becoming more and more problematic for the Roman Empire. Here's an interesting twist of history. John is stirring up trouble for someone like Rome. He's exiled to Patmos. He's alienated from the people that he knows and loves. And he'll die there, apparently. He has very little influence, says the emperor or the governor, on that island. And yet John, on the Lord's Day, gets a vision from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pens the vision. And we're reading it today. And for 2,000 years... It has affected history. And the Roman emperor is dead. Along with his empire. That in itself says something about the power of the book. The most powerful figure on the earth. Either explicitly or implicitly through a governor. Exiled this little man John. Because he was stirring up a little bit of trouble. And this little man, John, speaks to us today. And the emperor speaks nothing. It's likely uh, at this point in history when John gets this revelation that we don't know for sure. The other disciples were dead. All martyred but John. The historical setting of the churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation uh, at the first part are seven churches in what is roughly known as western Turkey today, uh, then called Asia Minor. There was apparently a mail route uh, in the Roman world that did sort of an arc uh, to these towns uh, that we now know of in terms of their location. And it's likely, though we don't know for sure, that same arc, by the way, exists today, the route. It's likely, but we don't know for sure, that the courier that got the letter from John went from one church to the next to read it, right? So when we think of the the church of Smyrna, we think of John's letter being delivered to the church of Smyrna and it being for the church of Smyrna. We don't think automatically about the fact that the church of Smyrna was listening to the words of John concerning the church at Laodicea or thyra But it's likely that the the carrier would have carried the letter to the first church and the entire book would have been read and discussed and then he'd have moved on to the next church and the entire book would have been read and discussed and all the information would have been disseminated that way. Remember, there were no printing presses, no copy machines. There was one copy, eventually copied many times, but probably originally taken as one scroll from one church to the next. The atmosphere was an atmosphere Of severe, um, times for the church in any of those locations. Um, the era of persecution was upon them and would only increase. Imagine yourself in this situation, a small church in a huge Roman empire that wishes, it seems, more and more every day to squeeze you out. And you see more and more persecution on the horizon. Imagine yourself in that situation and you get this letter. What an encouraging letter. It begins with admonition concerning you as the people of God in a particular place and how you ought to live. And then it speaks about what God is doing in history. And you have no idea about times and dates and sequences. All you know is that these things are going to happen and the end is... Near. What would you have thought? You would have thought near. Two thousand years ago, you would have thought near. You would have thought upon us. Just like in the 21st century, you think near upon us. God's timetable is not so much about linear frameworks of history as much as it is about urgency, about immediacy, about at any time. So God could intersect with history at any time and bring all of this to conclusion. Because God's presence and the end is always near. I'd like to uh, suggest a few keys um, for interpreting the book of Revelation. The first one may be the most troubling to some of you. And it is this. I would like you to read the book of Revelation, even if you don't agree with me. Try to read and interpret it as a poem. Hmm. Now you say that's bizarre. Let me read you uh, the description of what I mean. It, it's a combination of a variety of authors in a pen by Eugene Peterson. The result of John St. John's theological work is a poem. Or as one author has put it, the one great poem which the first Christian age pronounced. If Revelation is not read as a poem, it is simply incomprehensible. The inability or refusal to deal with St. John the poet is responsible for most of the misreadings, misinterpretation, and misuse of the book. A poet uses words not to explain something, Not to describe something so much, but to make something. What an interesting perspective. Poet means maker. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of imagination. It makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. We do not have more information when we read a poem. We have more experience. It's not an examination of what happens by an immersion, but instead. It's not an examination of what happens, but instead an immersion in what is happening. If Revelation is written by a theologian who is also a poet... We must not read it as if it were an almanac in order to find out when things are going to occur or a chronicle of what has occurred. Maybe you don't like the image of poetry. I'm not much of a poet. Don't have a deep appreciation for it. For the most part, I just don't get poetry. But I like the description. Why? Because it backs me off. It takes me out of the times and dates and sequences and asks me to imagine what does it look like for God in Jesus Christ to be the sovereign Lord of heaven and of earth. So keys to understanding Revelation, maybe try that on for size. Another key to understanding Revelation I've already alluded to, it was a letter to seven churches. Who understood it as much as we do? The nature of apocalyptic literature, another key to understanding Revelation, is figurative and not literal. If I could just say one thing that I wish you'd keep in your mind when you read the book of Revelation, it's that it's figurative, not literal. It doesn't mean it's untrue, it doesn't mean it's fanciful. It doesn't mean it's a myth. It means it's not literal, it's symbolic. So for instance, all the numbers, all the names, all the places, all the rivers, all the cities, all the times are symbolic of something that God was trying to communicate concerning himself and his world. The other thing I think is a key to understanding revelation is um, that the main point of prophecy is not to predict future events. How many times have you heard someone say something about prophecy and your immediate response is, well, they mean future events? That's what we almost always think. If you read the entirety of the scripture, what you'll realize is that prophecy was always in the service of contemporary reality. It might have spoken about the future, but the whole point of prophecy was not what is going to happen. But in light of what is coming, this is how you ought to live. Prophecy about, was about living in the middle. Always was and continues to be in the book of Revelation. So if we approach the book of Revelation from the perspective of predictions, if that's our first point of departure, we're off on the wrong foot. It's not so much about predictions. It's about today. There's one other thing uh, about, and then I'll finally get on to what I think are the main themes... (laughs) There's uh, one other thing uh, about that, um, and, and that is this. Sometimes the blessing that's associated with the book of Revelation is something like this. You're blessed if you read this book and do your best to understand the signs of the times. Where we came up with that idea, I'll have no idea myself because the book of Revelation doesn't say that. It doesn't say blessed are you when you figure it out. Blessed are you when you get the sequence right. The more you study it, the more you understand the sequence and the times and the places, and that will give you great blessing. Not at all. It's Nothing to do with that. The blessing of the book of Revelation has nothing to do with the accuracy of our predictions or even the study of the predictions that are in it. I think this is uh, Me. Any attempt to place a historical sequence to the many events in the book, and there are many events in the book and many sequences, is an exercise in futility and will end in absolute failure. <laughs> I don't think you could ever know. To put it another way, this is my last controversial comment, okay? This ought to stir up some. The designation premillennial Post-millennial, amillennial, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, they are all, I'm serious when I say this, utterly irrelevant to the message at hand. And for the most part, when emphasized, actually eclipse the message at hand. My suggestion is throw them out. Don't even think about them and see if you can hear the message. So what is the message? There is no possibility of me describing to you the richness and the depth of this message in a series that lasted all year. So as I said at the beginning of this series, this series is set up for failure. And my message is set up for failure. Because it does not do the book of Revelation justice. But I have to choose. So here you go. The first main message of the book of Revelation is this. The battle's real. There's a battle out there. And it's real. This was written to churches. And we get to listen in. I know your situation, he says. And I want to remind you of something. That you should keep at the front of your imagination, your reality, your current history. I want to remind you of something. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am the creator of all things. History has purpose and I am its purpose. And I will bring history to the ultimate culmination. I want to remind you of that churches in Asia Minor. And the reason I want to remind you of that is because if you look at your world, it's going to look like there's a battle going on. And you're absolutely right. What you can't see, but must know and hold on to by faith, is that I am in the middle of the battle. And I am doing my work in history right now. And what you would like to describe as pure history is only part of the process. Because the battle is mine and I'm going to complete it. There's something else about this battle he wants them to know. The battle is real because Satan is real. The battle is real because there's an enemy of the church of Jesus Christ And that enemy of the church of Jesus Christ wants to destroy the church. That means you. People at Smyrna and Laodicea and Thyatira and Bloomington. That means you. There's a real Satan out there and he wants to destroy the church in any way he can. And the way he destroys the church is in a multiplicity of manners. He's so creative. He comes in so many different ways. And he wants to destroy this church. And my friends, he says to the first century churches and to us, in the midst of that battle, you are in the crosshairs. Satan is after you. It's huge and cosmic. And it's tiny and personal. There's a real battle out there. Don't forget it. Sometimes I forget it. I really do. Sometimes I forget that history is all about Jesus Christ. Sometimes I forget that the sin that so easily besets me is it's about Somebody besides me. I'm not absolving myself of responsibility. I understand that I'm responsible for my own sin. But what I also have to remind myself is that my own sin is the reality of the work of Satan who wishes to destroy me and his church. If he could destroy me He bites off a little piece of Christ's bride. And sometimes I forget that. I need to be reminded. The second main message uh, that I wish to communicate about the book of Revelation is in the context of all of that, John says. Speaking to those churches. I want you to keep the faith. I don't want you to lose your first love. It would be easy to become numb to all the things in the world. It would be easy to become numb with the busyness of life. It would be easy to become numb with your intellectual ability, which can be your curse. It would be easy to become numb and absolutely flat. It would be easy to become numb while you pursue the intricacies of theology, including the predictions of the end time, you could become numb in that exercise and lose your first love. The essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, among other things, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you allow anything, good or bad, to eclipse that reality, you're losing it, my friends. He says to the churches, don't lose your first love. Don't lose your passion for Jesus. Do whatever it takes to restore that passion. I want you to keep the faith, he says, because suffering is coming. He speaks to those churches and he says, I know something about your suffering. And some of you are suffering very well. I want you to keep the faith when suffering comes. Because you cannot see, not with clarity, you cannot see the end of it all. And you cannot see with clarity how short your suffering is compared to eternity. And you cannot see with clarity that your suffering is eventually going to come to an end. And in retrospect, it's going to look like a pitiful mirage. It's going to look like a vapor that was there for a second and then gone. While you walk through your suffering, keep that reality close to your heart. I want you to keep the faith. Because suffering could make you run. Don't let it. I want you to keep the faith. And one of the ways I want you to do that is to hold on tightly to the truth. The truth of the revelation, not just of this revelation, but of all those scriptures that you know. I want you to hang on tightly to that truth. In spite of the fact that your culture speaks against it. In spite of the fact that the reality all around you says you are absolutely foolish. In spite of the fact that your heart itself wants to go in the opposite direction of what you know to be the truth. Hang on to it for dear life. Don't let it go. Keep it within your grasp. There's lies all around you, he says. Everywhere. Hang on to the truth. You know, my friends, you can't do that unless you continually return to it. Because your world will reinterpret it and spin it in directions that are absolutely lies. You must return to the source of the truth, which is the Word of God, and the counsel of other believers in the context of Christian community, do not allow the truth to slip from your grasp. Hang on to it. That's how you keep the faith. Another way you keep the faith, he says, is to live authentically. Don't say you believe and live a different way. Live in such a way that your very life is a description of the grace that you've embraced in Jesus Christ. You can believe lots of things and not live them authentically. But I want you to live out your life authentically. I want you to keep the faith by watching constantly for your mission. Remember that description of the open door? I I present to you an open door. I've given you Shall we say a mission, a direction? I've given you an opportunity. Seize it. Make it your mission in the proclamation of the gospel. I think this is a wonderful idea because every generation has new creative missions that are a part of its identity. But it grows from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. In this particular place, our mission is different than other particular places. I'm going to give you an open door. Speaking to the churches, I want you to walk through it. Now let me personalize it. I'm going to give you an open door. Next week, at work. I'm going to give you an open door. Next month. With your in-laws. I'm going to give you an open door. Several months from now. With your enemy. I'm going to open a door wide. Keep your eyes open. And walk through it. You know what it means to follow me. When you see the door open. Go through it. I want you to keep the faith by not losing your first love, by expecting suffering. It happens. By never giving up the truth, by living authentically, by watching for those missions, those open doors. And I want you to hold on to the faith by living like people who are who you are, set apart special holy don't forget it and I want your life as you hold on to the faith to be all about worship every bit of it they always come in late in the second service anyway so <laughs> the battle is real uh, keep the faith Third, judgment's coming. Uh, It's not mammy-pammy. It's coming. It's horrific. The final judgment is worse than anything you've ever seen. And here's the irony. The lamb that once was slain is the executor of such judgment. He came once as a lamb, was meek and mild. Now he comes as a lamb with his robe dipped in blood. Now he comes with seven stars in his hands and swords and everything available to him. And now's the time. And it's a mop-up exercise. And it's going to be a disaster for those who are called the wicked He's going to open seals because only he has the authority to open these seals. He's going to pour down plagues. And evil is going to be vanquished. There, there are a few words in the English language that I love more than vanquished and we hardly ever use it anymore. It's going to be vanquished. and That's, a, that's way better than extinct. It's going to be vanquished. I'm going to take care of this whole thing. Judgment is coming. And you know what the final pronouncement of the end of judgment is? It's not just those bad people over there or a bad activity or this or that or the other. It goes back to the beginning. It's about Satan himself. I'm going to take care of Satan. I'm going to bind him forever. I am going to destroy evil. By destroying your greatest enemy, judgment's coming. And that's the end of the judgment. The battle's real. I want you to keep the faith. Judgment's coming. And the final thing is just a declaration that you already know, but I want you to remember, churches. Jesus is Lord. Written to these churches. And we get to listen in. Jesus is Lord, and there's going to come a day where all nations and all people are going to acknowledge his lordship, and some of them are going to hide in the caves because they fear that lamb that was once slain. Jesus is Lord, and eventually every knee, even if the knee is not bowing because they love him, every knee is going to bow. Philippians 2, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day where everyone is going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And when that day comes, Jesus, as Lord, King Jesus, will bring his kingdom to this earth completely. On that day, it's a probably the most often quoted passage in Revelation, certainly my favorite. On that day, this is what it will look like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and they will live with him. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. (laughs) You know, tears are just most of the time associated with sorrow. I know there's tears of joy. But this is what he meant, those tears of sorrow. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. I've been a pastor for almost 25 years and I am sick of doing funerals. I don't mean the activity. I mean the death. And I can't wait till it's all over. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the older order of things will have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making... Everything new. Why? Because he's the Lord and he can do that. Then he said to me, write this down. For these words are trustworthy. And they're true. I've anticipated lots of things in my life. You know, I can remember the biggest anticipation. The little kid was Christmas. <laughs> I, I guess I kind of anticipate grandkids, whatever, if they're coming, that's fine. I, I don't anticipate really getting old because I can feel it happening already. <laughs> but every day, maybe it's part of getting old. I anticipate more with more eagerness and more gratitude and more faith in these words that are written. That are true. I anticipate this day. It's coming. And we will rejoice with him. Because Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, uh, Heavenly Father, for sending Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that uh, witnesses to the truth of your word. Thank you for the fellowship of believers who in spite of the variety of interpretations of Scripture can still unite around what is essential. And thank you for the end of the story. The end of the story that we can't seem to put together. (laughs) The end of the story that we sequentially are, well, just bewildered by. The end of the story that we just have to take by faith. But you are the same God who promised to send Jesus Christ and to redeem those who called upon his name. You're the same Lord who said through Jesus Christ, when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be your comforter and your guide. That same God, eternal Lord, says that Jesus will come again and will make everything new. We look forward to that day. We thank you for that day. And help us to especially live in light of that day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.
0: Amen.